What I want, peeps, what I want is Valerie's Naturals Oracles. And today we're reading The Road Less Traveled, A New Psychology of Love, Traditional Values and Spiritual Growth. We're down to the last two days of this book and then what I might go on to next. I asked my patrons what they wanted me to read next. And I've got... It's a choice of two books. It's down to two books. I've got tarot made easy now if you're not a spiritual person if you're not into tarot it's going to mean nothing to you and i don't know if i'm going to put this one on there but the one that i might read to you guys is the reluctant buddhist so that's all about niches in buddhism and this is what i actually am into and you'll understand the connection when i finish this book and i start on that one so if you want to know about niches in buddhism it's not just about being the buddha it's an everyday buddha thing and it's kind of like it opens you up to all sorts of spiritual growth your own revolution what all the fuss is all about because i'm sure you've heard about niches in buddhism you know and they have meetings and everything else but anyway i'm gonna stop it okay so i'm those are the two books i'm gonna be reading but we're down to the last two days of this one so we're on to section four which is about grace and it is part seven of section four and today we start off with the resistance to grace and this is coming into the closing of the book now but anyway so oroses as we spoke about yesterday did not go to a psychotherapist he healed himself and even had there been expert psychiatrists in ancient greece he still would have had to heal himself for as has been mentioned psychotherapy is only a tool a discipline it is up to the patient to choose or reject the tool and once chosen it is the patient who determines how to use the tool and to what end there are people who will overcome all manner of obstacles for example insufficient funds previous disastrous experiences with psycho psychiatrists or psychotherapists disapproving relatives cold and rejecting clinics to obtain therapy and every last ounce of it possible benefits others however will reject therapy even if it's offered them on a silver platter or else even if they do become engaged in the therapeutic relationship will sit in it like a bump on a log extracting from it almost nothing no matter how great the therapist's skill and effort and love while at the conclusion of a successful case i am tempted to feel that i have cured the patient I know the reality of the situation is that I have been no more than a catalyst. I'm fortunate to be that. Since ultimately people heal themselves with or without the tool of psychotherapy, why is it that so few do and so many do not? Since the path of spiritual growth, a bit difficult, is open to all, why do so few choose to travel it? It was to this question that christ was addressing himself when he said many are called but few are chosen but why is it that the few are chosen and what is it that distinguishes that few from the many the answer that may must most psychotherapists are accustomed to give is based on a concept of differing severity of psychotherapy 
In other words, they believe that while most people are sick, some are sicker than others, and the sicker one is the more difficult it is for them, for that one to be healed. Moreover, the severity of one's mental illness is directly determined by the severity, severity, and the earliness of the the parental deviation that one experienced in childhood. Specifically, individuals with psychoses are though or thought to have experiences extremely poor parenting in the first nine months of life their resulting illness can be ameliorated by this or that form of treatment but it is almost impossible to cure individuals with character disorders are thought to have experienced adequate care as infants but very poor care during the period between roughly nine months and two years of age with the result that they are less sick than psychotics but still quite sick indeed and very difficult to cure individuals with neuroses are that are thought to have received adequate parenting in their very early childhood but then to have suffered from poor parenting sometime after the age of two but usually beginning before the age of five or six neurotics and therefore thought to be less sick than either character disordered people or psychotics and consequently much easier to treat and cure there is i believe a great deal of truth to this schema and it forms a body of psychiatric theory that is quite useful to practitioners in a number of ways it should not be blithely criticized nevertheless it fails to tell the whole story among other things it denigrates it denigrates hmm, denigrates is that the word i've not heard that word before the vast importance of parenting in late childhood and adolescence this is good reason to believe that poor parenting in those later years can produce mental illnesses in and of itself and that good parenting during the later years can heal many and perhaps all the wounds caused by earlier poor parenting moreover while the schema has predictive value in a statistical sense neurotics are on the average easier to treat than character disordered persons and those with character disorders are on the average easier to treat than psychotics it fails to predict very well the course of growth in an individual case thus for example the more rapid course of a completely successful analysis i have ever conducted was with a man who came to me with a mind with a major psychosis and whose therapy was concluded nine months later on the other hand i've worked for three years with a woman who clearly had only a neurosis and achieved just only minimal improvement among the factors that the schema of the differing severity of mental illness fails to take into account is an ephemeral something in the individual patient which might be called a will to grow it is possible for an individual to be extremely ill and yet at the same time possess an extremely strong will to grow in which case healing will occur on the other hand a person who is only mildly ill at best we can define psychiatric illness but who lacks the will to grow will not budge an inch from an unhealthy position i therefore believe that the patient's will to grow is the one crucial determinant of success or failure in psychotherapy yet it is a factor that is not at all understood or even recognized by contemporary psychiatric theory although i am recognizing the extreme importance of this 
will to grow, I am not sure how much I will be able to contribute to its understanding. Since the concept brings us once again to the edge of, the, of mystery, it will be immediately apparent that the will to grow is in essence the same phenomenon as love. Love is the will to extend oneself for spiritual growth. Genuinely loving people are, by definition, growing people. I have spoken about how the capacity to love is nurtured in one by one by loving parenting, but I have also noted that parental nurturing alone fails to account for the existence of this capacity in all people. The reader will remember that the second section of this book concludes with four questions about love, two of which we are now considering. Why some people fail to respond to treatment by the best and most loving therapists? And why some people transcend the most loveless childhoods with with or without the help of psychotherapy to become themselves loving persons. The reader will also remember I stated that I that I doubted that I would be able to answer these questions to anyone's complete satisfaction. I suggest, however, that some light can be thrown on these questions by consideration of the concept of grace. I have come to believe that and have tried to demonstrate that people's capacity to love Hence, their will to grow is nurtured not only by the love of their parents during childhood, but also throughout their life by grace of God's love. This is a powerful force external to their consciousness, which operates through the agency of their own unconscious, as well as through the agency of loving persons other than their parents and through additional ways which we do not understand. It is because of grace that it is possible for people to transcend the traumas of loveless parenting and become themselves loving individuals who have risen far above their patients on the scale of human evolution. Why then do only some people spiritually grow and evolve beyond the circumstances of their parentage? I believe that grace is available to everyone, that we are all cloaked in the love of God no one less nobly than others the only answer i can give therefore is that most of us choose not to heed the call of grace and to reject its assistance christ's assertion many are called but few are chosen i would translate to mean all of us are called by and to grace but few of us choose to listen to the call heed the message <laughs> wow the question then becomes, why is it that so few of us choose to heed the call of grace? Why do most of us actually resist grace? We spoke earlier of grace providing us with a certain unconscious resistance to illness. How is it then that we seem to possess an almost equal resistance to health? The answer to this question has, in fact, already been given. It is our laziness, the original sin of entropy with which we have all been cursed. Just as grace is the ultimate source of the force that pushes us to ascend the ladder of human evolution, so it is entropy that causes us to resist that force. To stay at the comfortable, easing wrong where we now are, or even to descend to less and less demanding forms of existence. We have talked at at length about how difficult it is to discipline ourselves, to generally love, to spiritually go, grow. It is only natural that we should shrink from the dis difficulty. 
while we have dealt with the basics of the problem of entropy or laziness, there is one aspect of the problem that deserves once again particular mention, the issue of power. Psychiatrists and many laymen are familiar with the fact that psych psychiatric problems occur with remarkable frequency in individuals shortly after promotion to positions of higher power and responsibility. The military psychiatrist who is particularly familiar with the problem of promotion neurosis is also aware that the problem does not occur with even greater frequency because vast numbers of soldiers are successful in resisting their promotions in the first place. There are a great many low-ranking career non-commissioned officers who simply do not want to become top sergeants, first sergeants or sergeant majors and there are also large numbers of intelligent non-commissioned officers who would rather die than become officers and who often repeatedly reject offers of officer training for which, by virtue of their intelligence and stability, they would seem, seem to be well qualified. And so it is with spiritual growth as well as in professional life. For the call to grace is a promotion, a call to a position of higher responsibility and power. To be aware of grace, to personally experience its constant presence, to know one's nearest to God is to know and continuously experience an inner tranquility and peace that few possess. On the other hand, this knowledge and awareness brings with it an enormous responsibility. For to experience one's closeness to God is also to experience the obligation to be God, to be the agent of his power and love. The call to grace is a call to a life of effort effortful caring to a life of service and whatever sacrifice seems to acquire seems required it is call out of spiritual childhood into adulthood a call to be a parent un, unto mankind t.s Eliot described the matter well in the christmas sermon he had thomas beckett deliver in the play murder in the cathedral but think for a while on the meaning of the word peace. Does it seem strange to you that angels should have announced peace when ceasingly the world has been stricken with war and the fear of war? war? Does it seem to you that the angelic voices were mistaken and that the promise was a disappointment and a cheat? Reflect now how our Lord himself spoke of peace. He said to his disciples, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Did he mean peace as we think of it, the kingdom of England as peace with its neighbours, the barons at peace with the king, the householder counting over his peaceful gains, the swept hearth, his best wine for a friend at the table, his wife singing to the children, those men, his disciples, knew no such things. They, were, they went forth to journey afar, to suffer by land and sea, to know torture, imprisonment, disappointment, to suffer death by martyrdom. What then did he mean? If you ask that, remember then that he said also, not as the world gives, give I unto you. So then he gave to his disciples peace, but not peace as the world gives. And there's a um, footnote here and it says the complete poems and plays, 1909 to 1950. Anyway, so 
With the peace of grace comes agonizing responsibilities, duties and obligations. It is not remarkable that so many well-qualified sergeants have no desire to assume the mantle of an officer. And it is no wonder that patients in psychotherapy have little taste for the power that accompanies genuine mental health. A young woman who has been in therapy with me for a year for a pervasive depression and who has come to learn a good deal about psychopathology of her relatives was was excellent one day exuberant sorry one day the words been split up exuberant one day after a family situation that she had handled with wisdom equanimity and facility i really felt good about it she said i wish i could feel that way more often i told her that she could pointing out to her that the reason she had felt so well was that for the first time in dealing with her family she was in a position of power being aware of all their distorted communication and the devious ways in which they attempted to manipulate her into fulfilling their unrealistic demands and therefore she was able to be on top of the situation. I told her that as she was able to extend this type of awareness to other situations, she would find herself increasingly on top of things and therefore experiencing that good feelings more and more frequently. She looked at me with the beginning of a sense of horror. But that would require me to be thinking all the time, she said. I agreed with her that it was through a lot of thinking that her power would evolve and be maintained and that she would be rid of the feeling of powerlessness as the root of her depression. She became furious. I don't want to have to think all the goddamn time, she roared. I don't call, I don't come here for my life to be more difficult. I want to be able to just relax and enjoy myself. You expect me to be sort of God or something. Sad to say it was shortly afterwards that this potentially brilliant woman terminated treatment. Far short of being healed, terrified of the demands that mental health would require of her. It may sound strange to laymen, but psychotherapists are familiar with the fact that people are routinely, routinely terrified by mental health. A major part of the task of psychotherapy is not only to bring patients to the experience of mental health but also through a mixture of consolidation consolidation consolation reassurance and sternness to prevent them from running away from the experience once they have arrived at it one aspect of this fearfulness is rather legitimate and by itself not unhealthy the fear that that if one becomes powerful one might misuse power Saint Augustine wrote, Dilege e quod vis fac, meaning, if you are loving and diligent, you may do whatever you want. If people progress far enough in psychotherapy, they will eventually leave behind the feeling that they cannot cope with a a merciless and overwhelming world and will one day suddenly realise that they they have it in their power to do whatever they want. The realisation of this freedom is frightening. If I could do whatever I want, they will think, what is it to prevent me from making gross mistakes, from committing crimes, from being immoral, from abusing my freedom and power? Is my diligence and my love alone sufficient to govern me? 
If the realisation of one's power and freedom is experienced as a call to grace, as it often is, then the response will also be, Oh Lord, I fear I am not worthy of your trust in me. This fearfulness is, of course, itself an integral part of one's diligence and love, and therefore useful in the self-governance that prevents the abuse of power. For this reason, it is not to be cast aside, but it should not be so monumental as to prevent a person from hiding the call to grace and assuming the peace of which he or she is capable. Some who have been called to grace may wrestle for years with their fearfulness before they are able to transcend it so as to accept their own godliness. When this fearfulness and sense of unwillingness is so great as to cons constant, consistently prevent the assumption of power, it is a neurotic problem and dealing with it may be a central issue or even the central issue in one's psychotherapy. But for most people, the fear that they might abuse the power is not the central issue in this resistance to grace. It is not the do what you want part of St. Augustine's maximum that causes them indigestion but the be diligent part most of us are like children or young adolescents we believe that the freedom and power of adulthood adulthood is our due but we have little taste for adult responsibility and self-discipline much as we feel oppressed by our parents or by society or fate we actually seem to need to have powers above us to blame for our condition to rise to a position of such power that we have no one to blame except ourselves is a fierce state of affairs. As has already been mentioned, were it not for God's presence with us in this exalted position, we would be terrified by our loneliness. Still, many have so little capacity to tolerate the loneliness of power that they reject God's presence rather than experience it themselves as the sole master of their ship. Most people want peace without the loneliness of power, and they want the self-confidence of adulthood without having to grow up. We have spoken in various ways about how difficult it is to grow up. A very few march unambivalently and unhesitantly into adulthood, ever eager for new and greater responsibilities. Most drag their feet in, and in fact, never become more than partial adults, always shrinking from the demands of total adulthood. So it is with spiritual growth, which is inseparable from the process of psychological maturation. For the call to grace in its ultimate form is a summons to be one with God, to assume peership within, with God. Hence it is a call to total adulthood. We are accustomed to imagining the experience of conversion of sudden call to grace as an old joy phenomenon. In my experience, more often than not, it is at least partially an old shit phenomenon. <laughs> at the point we finally listen to the call, we may say, oh, thank you, Lord. Or we may say, oh, Lord, I am not worthy. Or we may say, oh, Lord, do I have to? So the fact that many are called but few are chosen is easily explainable in terms of the difficulties inherent in responding to the call to grace. The question we are left with then is not why people fail to accept psychotherapy or fail to benefit from it even in the best hands 
or why humans routinely resist grace, the force of entropy makes it only natural that they should do so. Rather, the question is the opposite. How is it that a few do heed the call that is so difficult? What distinguishes the few from the many? I am unable to answer this question. There, these people may come from wealthy cultured backgrounds or from impoverished superstitious ones. They may have experienced basically loving parents, but they are as likely to have experienced profound deprivation of parental affection or genuine concern. They may enter psychotherapy because of minor difficulties or adjustments or with overwhelming mental illness. They may be old or young. They may heed the call to grow suddenly and with apparent ease, or they may find and curse against it, only gradually and painfully giving way to it, inch by inch. Consequently, with experience over the years, I have actually become less rather than more selective in determining with whom I will accept therapy. I apologise to those I have excluded from therapy as a result of my ignorance, for I have learned that in the early years of the psychotherapeutic process, I have absolutely no ability to predict which of my patients will fail to respond to therapy which will respond with significant but still partial growth and which will miraculously grow all the way to the state of grace. Christ himself spoke of the unpredictability of grace when he said to Nicodemus, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it will go next, so it is with the spirit. We do not know on whom he will next bestow this life from heaven. And there's a footnote here. It says John verses 3, chapter 8, or John chapter 3, verses 8. This translation is taken from the Living Bible because it seems to, to me superior to the King's James Version. Do you see what I mean? The King's James Version of the Bible is so watered down. I, I'm not putting my opinion on anybody. Anyway, let's go. <laughs> let's carry on. Let's carry on. So, um where was we so so it is with spirit we do not know on whom he will next bestow this life from heaven much as we have been able to say about the phenomenon of grace in the end we are left having to acknowledge its mysterious nature so i'm gonna leave it there and it's the last day tomorrow of this book i thoroughly enjoyed this one I have to say so i hope you enjoyed it too but tomorrow's the last and then we'll discuss the new book so until tomorrow <laughs>